0: Get in.
1: Well, what about Enola?
0: on only air for what? Get in the water.
1: It'll be all
0: right. Don't touch anything. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick.
1: And I'm Julia.
0: And today we're talking about Minutes 109 and 110, which begin with the Mariner making a statement knowing that Helen will misinterpret his meaning and end with Helen in a diving bell as the Mariner lights some flares. I suddenly realized that I spoiled the beginning of this clip last week because I went all in on the Mariner saying, I'll show you dry land, when really that happens in this clip, not in the last one.
1: Eh, It's a pretty gray (laughs) journey on his taunting her.
0: Where last week he was like, you want to see dry land? You really want to see dry land? It's close enough.
1: Right. He's being so sarcastic and so mean.
0: Oh, but Helen's reaction when he says, I'll take you to dry land... She looks exasperated.
1: Yeah. He is starting to break her spirit, I think. Whereas the Helen that we have gotten to know steadfastly believes in Dryland and believes that this person who said he could take her there is going to take her there. The last few minutes of the movie have broken her of that spell. So he says, oh, I'll take you to Dryland. And she's like, What the hell have we been doing? (laughs) What is going to happen now? We've been on the water for so long (laughs) with the understanding that
0: we got to go to dry land because you knew where dry land was, but apparently you didn't. And now all of a sudden, he's like, I'll take you to dry land. It's like, ah. Mental whiplash is the phrase that comes to mind.
1: Yeah, for sure. That is absolutely what she is feeling.
0: We cut from that shot To the water, down splashes what is going to be revealed as a diving bell. This is the Mariner's collapsible plastic and rope contraption that he uses to dive down.
1: Uses to what? I don't know He doesn't need it to dive down. It's a fantastic contraption. Oh, yeah. It is gorgeously constructed, and it works like a charm. But why does he need it?
0: Yeah, he can breathe underwater. Like He doesn't need to go down in a diving bell unless it's a comfort thing, but...
1: I can't imagine it's comfortable in there. Yeah. I mean, the air is going to turn gross. I'm sure there's a word for air that's getting low on oxygen, but I don't know what it is other than gross. I have a theory about the presence of the diving bell. He doesn't use it. It's left over from a previous companion Mm. of some kind, be that... A romantic companion, be that a child or a parent or any other kind of family member, but that there used to be at one time another person on that boat. We've talked in the past about his dad abused his ability to go underwater. So I can kind of imagine a scenario where the mariner's father goes down in the diving bell and forces the mariner to take him down and guide him through the water so that they can collect things.
0: Salvage from the bottom.
1: Yeah, and become quite a rich man.
0: Yeah, we're... Potentially. We have to wait until after the smokers take Enola, as far as the book is concerned, to get the full backstory. Okay. But it is coming. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to jump ahead to it. I that want to full say back that story.
1: Does that answer the question of why there's a diving bell? No. Okay.
0: I look at him having a diving bell, and I can only assume that it is something that he has gotten over the course of his trading career. He probably came across another drifter, and the other drifter wanted to trade for something that was on the mariner's boat, and all he had in return was this diving bell. And of course, the drifter wouldn't know that the mariner doesn't need something like that. But hey, it's good to have gadgets.
1: Yeah. And if the concept of a diving bell is out there in this world, how many people have them and know how to use them? And how does that contribute to what is on Waterworld, the objects that are on Waterworld?
0: I am actually really surprised that diving bells are not more common when you consider that there are so many drifters out there and so many atolls out there. And even if you don't know that you're floating on top of a dead civilization, if you're going after really anything under the water, the deeper you go, the more access you have. And so, whether people are using diving bells or they're building structures to create underwater elevator type situations i can imagine an atoll using a bunch of material to sink a tube down into the water so that they can access something below the surface
1: oh i love the idea of one reason why there's not really that many people in water world is that part of the civilization moved down underwater to like underwater biomes hmm. that they made for themselves
0: Yeah, that's a huge plot point in the comic books.
1: Really? Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I love it. Love it. And they naturally would have evolved in a different direction. That's fantastic. (laughs) There's not just the remnants of our dead civilization down there either. We've talked many times about there really ought to be more boats. More large, large boats. Cruise liners, tankers... Huge aircraft carriers, just staggeringly large seafaring vessels. They should be out there, but they're not. Which tells me that they've either been dismantled, that's entirely possible, but they also could have sunk, and could be good salvage if you can get down there, which mm-hmm. a diving bell would allow.
0: Exactly. You'd be like Ray from that Star Wars movie, Force exactly. Awakens.
1: Exactly.
0: I looked up diving bells on Wikipedia This is what it had to say. A diving bell is a rigid chamber used to transport divers from the surface to depth and back again in open water, usually for the purpose of performing underwater work. The most common types are the open-bottomed wet bell and also the closed bell, which can maintain an internal pressure greater than the external ambient. Diving bells are usually suspended by a cable and lifted and lowered by a winch from a surface support platform. Unlike a submersible, the diving bell is not designed to move under the control of its occupants nor to operate independently of its launch and recovery system. The wet bell, which is what the Mariner has on hand, is a structure with an airtight chamber which is open to the water at the bottom that is lowered underwater to operate as a base or a means of transport for a small number of divers. Air is trapped inside the bell by pressure of the water at the interface. These were the first type of diving chamber and are still in use in modified form.
1: Well, this certainly counts as a modified form. Certainly. Now, the way that he tosses it in the water, it kind of flops to one side and it really doesn't look like it's catching that much air inside. Yeah. It seems kind of haphazard.
0: It seems to inflate, however, as the next time we see it, it's... Fully domed. Yeah. We don't see the mariner fastening weights to the bottom. We just see him toss it in and then he dives in afterwards, which I need to talk about that dive, but I don't need to talk oh, about it right now.
1: I need to talk about that dive too.
0: But yeah, you toss the bell in, there needs to be weights attached to it, because the main thing that causes it to lower and raise is the winch. It if you didn't have weight attached to the diving belt to compensate for all of the air that's in there, it would never sink.
1: Right, and the further down you get, the stronger that air pocket wants to go up. So I have questions about its ability to keep going down. And there does seem to be a weight on the bottom of it.
0: Oh yeah, we'll see it later.
1: But, I don't know, I really question the physics of this. It's a fantastic concept. And of course, for a movie, it's perfect, because it does not have to be logical or sound. It just needs to look good, and it does. Mm -hmm. It does exactly what it's supposed to do, but it does not make any sense.
0: The way we skip over the minutiae and the boring parts of setting up a diving bell, it does throw you for a little bit of a loop, but at least later on they show the other elements of it and don't let us assume that the mariner keeping one hand on the diving bell is what makes it go up and down.
1: Yeah. Upon casual viewing... That's what it looks like is happening, is that he is guiding it. You actually have to look at the contraption and the limited view that they give us. And it's dark and a bit murky, so we really don't get to see it well. But he is not the one actually making it move.
0: And we can talk about this next week. All he's doing is providing a direction. The upward and downward movement is happening out of his control. What? is in his control, though, is how the mariner enters the water. (laughs) I'm not quite sure what kind of dive this is because he steps off the back of the boat and just goes headfirst into the water, keeping his hands at his side because, as we all know, he was just shot the other week. And... (laughs) It is so strange-looking.
1: It is, and I guess there's nothing... Saying you have to put your arms out in front of you to dive, I always thought that it was to like break the water tension, yeah, before most of your body hit the water, but I don't know if that's a real thing or if that's just I don't know, a kid's understanding of water. It reminds me of this story that I read in elementary school. I think it was a story, like in our language arts textbook about this little boy. And there was, like, an older brother or an older classmate, but it was a a boy who was older than him running in track. And he didn't run with his arms by his side, like, swinging back and forth like you see people running. He ran letting his arms hang loose, so they kind of flew behind him. And that's how he ran, and people made fun of him for it. But then he was really fast, and he won races. And then people stopped making fun of him because there was nothing wrong with the way he ran. He still ran fast. Okay. That's what I thought of with the funky dive. <laughs> he got into the water just as gracefully as she did.
0: I can't imagine that hitting the water head first feels any different than, say, taking a soccer ball to the forehead during a game. Athletes do that all the time. Right. Right. So it can't be all that bad.
1: And he is a watery person. He knows what the deal is. Yeah.
0: So the mariner swims over to the diving belly, shouts up to Helen, get in. And Helen, consummate protector as she always is, asks about Enola. Like, what about her? Are we just going to leave her behind? And the answer is yes, because there is only air for one. Beside that fact, I imagine that you would not want to put Enola in this situation because she would probably freak out going this deep. I'm not super confident that Enola would handle this environment well, because she is a child and I have no other reasoning.
1: I agree that she is quite young and maybe shouldn't be doing this, shouldn't be given this information in this way. Hmm. She is a rather mature child, though. While she is fanciful and a little devious in the way that she draws, in the way that she draws on things that are not hers and with things that are not hers, with no consideration for other people's belongings. Aside from that, she is quiet, sort of, and seems to enjoy at times just sitting to the side and observing. So it's kind of hard to say really how she would react. But I agree. I think she's too young to be told this information in this way.
0: I would like to point out that Helen, unlike the Mariner, dives arms first into the water and produces much less splash, which means she would get a higher score from the judges, I'm sure. hmm And as she's diving into the bell, the Mariner shouts up to Enola that she should not touch anything. And Enola seems so disappointed because there are so many things to touch.
1: There are so many things to touch that it's physically hard not to. She kind of looks around a little bit. See, she's standing right next to some sort of control area Mm -hmm. with levers begging to be pulled. And she kind of pulls away from them.
0: Yeah. And she's got her hands tucked behind her back as if to say, I can't touch anything. My hands are behind my back. Right. So with Helen secured inside the diving bell, the mariner begins his dive. The winch is let out, the mariner holds on to the side of the diving bell, and they begin to descend. And as they do, Helen wipes away the side of the diving bell and she has this almost shocked expression on her face as if to say, "Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is actually working."
1: Exactly. Yeah. Imagine living in a world where you were completely unfamiliar with 90% of it. That's a lot of your world to not ever see. Now, obviously, she can swim, but how much do the people of the atoll and the people of this world in general trust the water? We have seen a sea monster
0: <laughs> Yeah,
1: that was willing and eager to eat a person. So how much of the ocean do they really explore I get the feeling not really much.
0: Yeah, they stick to the surface and don't penetrate that deeply. I've heard so many times that we spend so much time exploring space when there is an alien world right below the waves on our own Earth because so much of it has been unexplored.
1: You're right. There is a statistic. It's something like we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the ocean floor.
0: You're right. Something
1: like that. Where, yes, between us and Mars is this huge expanse of vacuum and radiation and debris, and we go through it anyways. And between us and the ocean floor is this great expanse of water, and we don't go through that nearly as much. Proportionally, I would say. Proportionally.
0: Water is just a more difficult medium to move through. It
1: is. It is. It's a huge hindrance.
0: Yeah. Even light has trouble penetrating too deeply into the ocean. As we see, with the diving bell descending, it gets to the point where it is so dark that the mariner has to begin lighting off flares. I looked this up. Sunlight entering the water can travel down about a 1,000 meters, which is 3,280 feet. However, there is rarely any significant light beyond 200 meters or 656 feet the way it works is the ocean is divided into three zones based on depth and light level the upper 200 meters of the ocean is called the euphotic or sunlight zone that zone contains the vast majority of commercial fisheries and is home to many protected marine mammals and sea turtles only a small amount of light gets below that depth so the zone between 200 meters or 656 feet and 1,000 meters or 3,280 feet is usually referred to as the twilight zone, but <laughs> is officially called the dysphotic zone. In this zone, the intensity of light rapidly dissipates as depth increases. Such a minuscule amount of light penetrates beyond a depth of 200 meters that photosynthesis is not possible. The aphotic or midnight zone exists in depths below 1,000 meters. Sunlight does not penetrate to those depths, and the zone is bathed in darkness.
1: That's mind-boggling to me to think about just the vast area that is in that midnight zone of our oceans. Mm -hmm. We live in a time where there is work going on down there, and there's all sorts of creatures being discovered down there, and these stark photographs of a flashlight beam hitting a creature we've never seen before, and then it's pitch black around them. That's new stuff. Mm -hmm. That's only recently that that kind of exploration has become more common, and those kind of photographs available to share. It's incredible.
0: Yeah. And the weirdest thing is, on Waterworld, where Everest is the only piece of land poking up out of the water, a lot of the land that we consider to be ocean level right now would be in that dysphotic or aphotic zones.
1: Very true. Remind me how tall Mount Everest is?
0: Everest is 29,000 feet tall.
1: What is that in meters?
0: 8850 meters.
1: So yeah, most of our world, especially us here on the coast, where we are above sea level, but we're not that much above sea level.
0: Yeah, like 100 feet.
1: Yeah. Would all be in the midnight zone.
0: Mm -hmm. Even Denver, which... We're going to talk next week about how the city that they go to is supposed to be Denver. It's only 5,280 feet above sea level. So even then, we're pushing the limits of exactly how much light is going to penetrate down there.
1: These flares. Do you think he needs flares to see? Or do you think he has underwater eyes?
0: Oh, I think he needs flares to see. Like, sure, he's got gills and webbed feet, but... If he had any sort of low light vision, he would need to wear sunglasses on the surface because I don't think his irises would be able to change that much.
1: That's very true.
0: It is pretty lucky that he has this bundle of flares. Yeah,
1: that's what I'm thinking about. Does he make them?
0: Oh, he probably finds them because flares, they don't need oxygen to burn. So in essence, if they get wet, it's not the worst thing. So you could find them in a box. Yes, on the ocean floor and get your hands on them. He probably got them from the wreck of a boat that he found somewhere.
1: That kind of answers a question that I have had about the frequency of his excursions down below. Mm -hmm. That just because he can swim and breathe underwater doesn't mean he has everything he needs to just go down there whenever he wants. And this is a great example of a finite resource that he needs to take into consideration. Mm.
0: I think that's why he does what we saw him doing at the beginning of the movie, that he has a certain length of line out, and if he's able to snag something, then he will go down and look for it. He's not diving down on a constant basis just to scout. He's got that hook-in-line situation set up.
1: What I like about the end of this minute is that You really do feel like we're being set up for something. This two minutes is definitely a bridge between one scene and another. Mm -hmm. But we get enough of the next scene that we know that it's going to be something cool.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's useful to have this scene here because we do need to move from the argument to this underwater reveal. And I really like the buildup because we don't necessarily know what they're going to find. Sure, we saw in the opener, oh, look at all of the continents being flooded. But we don't know exactly what he's bringing her down to see. Is it going to be a sign of civilization? Is it going to be bombed out wreckage or something to that effect? We don't know exactly what we're going to get. So the tension gets to build and then we'll get the payoff next week.
1: And we... Have had small little things, trinkets, to connect our world to this world. Mm-hmm. But now, potentially, we could get more than that. We could get a serious, real, tangible link that they are on our planet and in our world. And it's exciting.
0: Yeah. Equally exciting is the guest that we have lined up for next week. I have mentioned them multiple times in this podcast up to now. So I'm very excited to bring them on. But I'm not going to say exactly who it is because I want to keep everybody guessing so that they come back next time. (laughs) As for next time, baby, it's better down where it's wetter, under the sea, as the Mariner reveals to Helen that the world was consumed by the water and how all of his treasures come from his deep dive scavenging. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
1: Waterworld was written by Peter Raider and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures.
0: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com.
1: Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute.
1: And like us on Facebook by searching madmaxminute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
0: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmen.
1: Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 55. See you next time.